Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to eBooks and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Martin Schuster about new television, the aesthetics and politics of the genre. So welcome back to the podcast, because this is your, uh, your second time talking to New Books and Critical Theory. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Um, this is a really fantastic book. Um, I, it might sound dismissive if I say I found it really interesting and enjoyed reading it, because it's both philosophy and television. But actually, I, th- I think it combined the two really well. And it sort of strikes me that a really good place to start would be why did you want to write a book about television? Right. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's actually a good question to start with because certainly I think a lot of my colleagues in, in philosophy probably, um, share the sentiments behind the question. <laughs> um, I, I decided to write the book because I increasingly found myself watching a lot of this, uh, stuff that I sort of refer to as new television, which I'll say a little more about in a sec, but, um, and I found myself very captivated by it. And, and a lot of these shows became very important to me as sort of works of art, um, no different than sort of uh, music or, or paintings that I'm fascinated with and or even literature. And um, and really the impulse behind the book was in a way to try to come to grips with that and to try to figure out, um, you know, why am I so interested in these things? Why have they become so important to me? And, and what sort of account I can give of that? Um, and so in many regards, I think the inspiration in a lot of ways um, was really a, a certain strand of ordinary language philosophy as, as exemplified by, by Stanley Cavell above, above all, I think. Um, and I mentioned him just because he just passed away last week. And I think um, Cavell was one of the first philosophers that I've personally read who, who sort of really stressed this idea of, of trying to um, come to grips with one's interests and trying to... Um, to assess them and understand them and to give reasons for them that are potentially compelling to others. And so he already inherently saw the the deeply sort of political link between doing a certain sort of art criticism and between uh, founding communities oriented around these sorts of art objects that both 
somehow um, partake of this criticism and also partake of the sort of desires um, and intuitions that, that animate the criticism. And so that's really where the book originated is just in this, in this very, um, very just odd uh, happenstance of interest that emerged and then a sort of reflection on, on how to make sense of that. I mean, you sort of hinted at all of the things we're going to talk about there, which which is great. Um, and I mean, the thing we, we really need to do is clear the ground because, mm-hmm. you know, you sort of said a little bit about that sense of, um, you know, possible bemusement or, you know, slight kind of um, wariness of your colleagues when thinking about philosophy and television. But there is something specific, actually, that you're you're trying to carve out with this idea about new television. Um, and we can see this in popular discussions about TV, about, you know, a new golden age of television or, you know, television being much more important than movies and, you know, the kind of like the key modern art that speaks to our moment. But but actually there's a kind of um, a very specific um, and I suppose, you know, kind of um, almost analytic project you've got about saying what new television is, but also what it's not. So what is it and what is it not? Yeah, so um, I think that's exactly right. And one of, one of the areas that I sort of ended up reading quite extensively in is, is just media studies in general and sort of how they've dealt with television. And I think there you find a range of, of sort of approaches. And they're also, I think, realize that there's something significant about this. And you have sort of people discussing if television has a cinema style or if it ought to be understood as beautiful or high end or um, uh, has a certain sort of complexity or quality. And and um, I somehow agree with all of these intuitions, but but I wanted to, to understand them in, in somewhat more depth. And so part of just using the moniker of new television is to stress this idea that it's something like a new medium. And what I mean by that is, um, is there's one way in which we can understand a medium is just a sort of technological apparatus. So, you know, photography is a medium, films, a medium, paints, a medium, but there's a probably a, a slightly more sophisticated way in which you can understand media as, as a little more flexible than that. So that, um, medium would not there thereby be linked exclusively to something like technology. But um, in the way that sort of Cavell and, and John Dewey, who's another philosopher um, that was quite important to me, uh, the way they envision it is a, a medium is just a way of getting through to someone. So it's a it's an established uh, convention that allows us to make sense to other people. And so in the aesthetic realm, there are established ways of doing this. So for example, a sonnet might be a sort of medium because it is an established way of getting through to someone, even though one can then further specify that it's, you know, the medium of the written word, for example. And so I think new television is a sort of new medium in that regard because it takes television tropes, so things like sitcoms and police procedurals and these things that have a long established history in television, and I think combines them with certain other media. So for example, literature, um, a lot of television has an extended temporality that's quite similar to the sort of temporality that you find in great novels where you have to spend so much time with the characters and the, uh, the sort of um, producer of these sort of works of art can thereby 
give a level of detail that might be absent in shorter works. Similarly, I think you get cinema tropes in a lot of these shows. So the way that they are actually shot, the the formal aspects of them are quite similar to cinema. Um, And I think one can multiply these things. So um, in the case of The Wire, which is a show I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, um, you even get something like a journalistic um, impulse and thereby journalistic ways of making sense that sort of smuggle themselves into into the show and so part of the newness of new television is the combination of all of these different ways of making sense into something that i would call a new media that's let's say the the sort of formal aspect of it but there's another element that i realize that is true across all of these shows which is something like um that novelty or newness itself is the topic of the shows in many ways. And what I mean by that is what struck me across all of the disparate genres that make up new television. So one can think here of everything from The Wire to The Sopranos to Weeds to um, Dollhouse to whatever else. I mean, one can multiply these shows almost infinitely. You seem to get... um, a very similar rubric, which is you have a, a portrayal of society as almost extensively, exclusively, and almost entirely emptied of any sort of normative authority. And what I mean by that is none of the institutions seem to work. So um, government doesn't seem to work. Um, judicial branches don't seem to work. Um The market doesn't even seem to work. The gangster realm doesn't seem to work. None of these seem capable of sustaining the sort of agency that they had sustained, let's say, in the past. Um, With one notable exception. So again, shows across so many disparate genres. One can think of Breaking Bad here. One can think of Sons of Anarchy. Again, from um, crime procedurals to police procedurals to sitcoms to whatever else in between, sci-fi, court dramas. The one notable exception seems to be the family. So um, agents within these shows oftentimes say, oh, I'm doing whatever I'm doing for my family, as if that institution somehow still has some sort of normative authority. And so in a way, I think the genre of new television then, so if one can speak, let's say, of the form of it, being this sort of uh, way of combining these various media, then the genre of it, so the way in which it works, is by having this trope of a loss of normative authority almost across the board, and then yet some sort of recourse to the family as the last remaining site of normative authority. And so those two things together, I think in a way, uh, is the basis of what I call new television. So in a way, both the form and the content is, is about newness in this way. And I think, obviously, one, there's a lot to be said about even the distinction between form and content, but for for the sake of, of heuristics, uh, I think that's the way that I would present it. Yeah, I mean, the story we're going we're gonna to tell about the wire, uh, we, and justify. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll explore and unpack um, particularly that theme I think about the family um, and the kind of the family is the last functioning institution but maybe before that I'm quite interested in, in the way you sketch out the idea of the world um, particularly with, with relevance to Twin Peaks because obviously um, of the three core examples the book uses Twin Peaks is maybe the kind of the weird one, the sort of strange outlier. Yeah, in a way it is and in a way it isn't. So um, 
I think Twin Peaks is, I sort of, and I think many others who, who are somehow interested in, in a lot of these sophisticated new television shows, um, many of us locate Twin Peaks as, as the sort of origin point. And I think this actually goes back to something that I said earlier, which is um, it's not by accident that I think Twin Peaks is the origin point um, because I think um, it's not by accident, for example, that Twin Peaks was a show that was made by somebody who was at first a filmmaker. Um, and so its origins in many deep ways, I think, are in cinema. So David Lynch is first and foremost uh, a filmmaker and a very talented one at that. And then he sort of um, tries his hand in television. And I think you're right. You get something that's very weird. And in a way, um, in many respects, for for as much as I love the show, it's not a particularly successful work of art, I would say, ultimately. And that's because the second season is sort of a disaster. um, And I think Lynch is, you know, involved with it in, in all sorts of haphazard ways. But uh, but Twin Peaks itself, I think, in many ways, still fits the formula because it does very much show a loss of normative authority across the board, and the family structure is, in a way, still central. Um, but it it's not, I think, as sophisticated as some of the the later um, expressions of new television. But I think it is significant for understanding how the medium of new television works. In other words, how it combines again something like a police procedural, which is what Twin Peaks fundamentally is, with something like cinema, which Twin Peaks also is. And I think Lynch, again, is very interesting in this context because he basically, you, you'll you'll hear him say things nowadays um, with the new Twin Peaks comeback, which that would be a much longer discussion that I'm going to table for the moment. Um, uh, he sort of just talks about cinema and television being interchangeable. And I think... Um, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, that would have been unfathomable to people. I mean, uh, film, I think, was recognized as a great art, but television was was just entertainment or flow in the way that a lot of uh, media studies folks conceived of it. Uh, it's, it's just there to sort of distract us. Um, and, and, and it was certainly not a serious art form. And I think that's that's changed. And I think Lynch realizes that in a way my book um, attempts to, to account for that. Um, the other thing I think that, that is involved here that's also important that we haven't talked about that maybe you were um, hinting at with your question is just this notion of, of world. Um, so one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing in the book is trying to understand the ontology of new television and ontology is just this, this fancy philosophical word um, for thinking about what, what do we make of the objects on the screen? I mean, what sort of being do they have? There's a deep sense obviously in which they're completely different from the objects of our world because we can't go inside the world of the television and touch them and pick them up and, and do things with them. But there's also a deep sense in which um, Cavell calls calls them mysterious. And what he means by that is um, there's a deep sense in which uh, they're not representations. And what he means by that and what I think I mean by that is something like the following. There's a deep sense in which a photograph or a film of a moving image is not a representation of that thing in the same way that a painting is or a poem is. Um, it doesn't represent it. It actually captures that thing. Um, but of course, it captures it in a distinct way, in such a way that it's inaccessible to you. And so uh, one way to understand this is that inaccessibility is fundamentally all that in a way sort of denotes is that you can't bypass the screen. You can't go through the screen and enter that world. 
but it's a world as complete as ours. So the photograph and the moving camera gives you a slice of another world that's just like ours. And it's in distinction to, I think, things like literature or poetry or paintings, which also, I think, in a deep way present you with worlds, but they're they're representations in a way that these sort of things um, are not. There's a certain reality to photographs and films. And so that, the book spends a lot of time thinking about that. And, and I think what's central about film, what's also central about television, is that um, in Cavell's words, there are sort of, quote, automatic world projection, meaning that the camera projects an entire world to us. And world here is inflected in uh, very phenomenological terms. And so that's another uh, sort of fancy uh, philosophical word for just um, speaking about the richness of these worlds. So there's a deep sense in which you really do get a whole world when you watch a film or you watch a television show. Um, it is not that you just have a slice of the world the way you might in a painting or something of that sort, but you really get a sort of richness um, with sound, with emotion, with various moods, with all of the things that go up into um, making our sort of world. The only difference is that you can't enter that world. All, all you have is, is a sort of vision of it from the screen and, and you're forever barred entering it. And I think there's a lot of interesting resonances here to the way in which human subjectivity is conceived of in the modern period. So what I mean by that is think of um, the ways in which uh, we take our relationship to the world we fundamentally imagine us as sort of monads that are looking out into the world. And philosophy is very much in the modern period fascinated by things like skepticism, which is this idea that, oh, I can't be certain about you know, what's out in the world because my only access to the world is representational in a way. I have representations of what's out there inside of my head. And it the problem arises potentially that there's no way to confirm whether my representations match up to it. And I think it's not by accident. Um, structurally, the situations are so similar that it's not by accident that this becomes a really interesting trope for cinema in many ways. So this um, distinction between uh, illusion and reality, I mean, is most exemplified, I think, in a way, in one of the biggest blockbusters, which is this Matrix trilogy, um, where skepticism itself um, becomes a sort of uh, sort of fodder for uh, film and cinema in a way, and I think one can multiply the examples of, of where this happens from from the earliest um, beginnings of, of cinema. Um, certainly, it, it's a very prominent theme in, in Hitchcock, and, and I think it's a prominent theme uh, throughout uh, film's early history. The world building project um, is exemplified excellently, I think, by The Wire. And also, actually, that sense of things not working, institutions breaking down. Um, and then this question about how do you tell stories as well? So, and, and actually, I mean, thinking about The Wire as well, you know, it, it, it's very cinematic in a way, but it's also, as you've, you've gestured towards, it's like a long novel that, you know, you have to give time to. And, you know, you, you get immersed in a world, but obviously you're not, you know, kind of given full access to it and you certainly can't change it so can you introduce the wire a little bit you know maybe say like what it is for people who haven't seen it um you know the kind of core themes um i know you, you concentrate quite a lot in the 
um, in the chapter on the wire on the fifth season, but also there's, you know, kind of particular things about the wire that go beyond just season five. Yeah. Um, I, I can absolutely do that, but perhaps actually let me take up a thread that you sort of mentioned, which is this, this point about storytelling. And then I'll use that to sort of motivate, um, thinking about the wire. <laughs> You're right that storytelling is also very important to, um, to, I think, understanding new television and to the aspirations of the book. And um, I think storytelling in a, in a very robust sense. So here, very much influenced by um, by a, a political theorist named Hannah Arendt, um, who I actually consider a philosopher, even though she didn't consider herself a philosopher. But she has this very interesting argument that storytelling is, in fact, actually central to who we are as humans. So it's not... Um, it's not that humans sort of somehow exist and then we start telling stories and it's just something that we sort of do, but rather actually storytelling is at the core of who we are, um, that it's the only way that we have of making sense of the world and that um, we tell different stories and we layer stories within stories. And so even something as, you know, as sort of um, seemingly far from literature as, as particle physics or something is also itself a sort of story about the world that requires other sites of storytelling to make sense. Um, and so what's especially interesting in this context, I think, um, in the context of modernity, is that um, there's a sort of fragmentation that I think happens in the modern period. And I think the causes of this are are almost too diverse to discuss, but one can think of, of the sort of rise of capitalism. One can think of the erosion of various forms of traditional and religious authority. One can think about particular family structures, um, international state structures, uh, and one can even multiply these things more. I mean, one can even think about the sort of philosophical approaches to conceiving of agents that we talked about, but everything in the modern world um, seems to fragment uh, us as agents, it seems to um, produce this sort of monadic existence where people are sort of um, siloed off in different places. And um, I think what's especially interesting is that this sort of fragmented experience actually appears to be addressed by things like cinema and then I would argue also television. So um, two critics and that I'm extremely sort of taken with are um, an early American critic named Robert Warshaw, who wrote a lot about um, popular culture in the early 20th century, and also Walter Benjamin, who was writing about similar things in Europe. And Benjamin um, also spends a lot of time thinking about storytelling and thinking about how the possibilities for storytelling have um, been eroded and have been damaged and are under threat because of this sort of status of modernity. And he has this very interesting note in one of his notebooks on an essay that he has called The Storyteller, where he basically says, do not cry, film instead of storytelling. And what he means by that is that film seems to uh, have taken up the role that official sort of storytelling used to have. Um, and what I think he means by that is that film has this amazing capacity to take fragmented experience and for let's say two hours um make it cohesive in a way um, and film can do this in a stunning way by taking things that are potentially extremely disparate moving the camera around from locations time periods spaces and so forth um, and it can organize it into something that for again two hours makes sense 
And I think obviously television does the same thing, but again, in longer periods, potentially. And all of this, I think Benjamin and Warshaw and Cavell, they all realize that it's democratizing in a way. So it requires very little training to be able to follow a film or a television show. Um, One doesn't need to uh, have the sort of training, for example, that one might need to be able to read Proust or to understand very complex poetry or to follow, you know, very sophisticated classical music. Um, so it requires very little training. It's democratizing in this way, but it also trains our vision um, because it allows us to practice making sense of all of these disparate elements in a way. Um, and Arendt would say that like all artworks, it potentially trains us for judgment. And what she means by that is it trains us to make sense of the things that we're seeing. So there is some story presented. There's some sort of cohesion that's presented. And then it's up to us to decide about it. And I think um, one can see this exemplified in new television explicitly, I think, where uh, viewers love gossiping about these things. We love talking about the motivations of the characters. We love sort of assessing whether what they did is moral or immoral or justified or unjustified. And I think it's striking that this is true in a way from presidents. You know, President Obama very famously said that The Wire was his favorite show to you know, the most common criminal on the street who was equally fascinated by The Wire. And um, and I think that, that is also very fascinating because it by presenting a world that is so rich, that's not our world, it forces us also to reflect on our world. So the more specific, actually, and the more particular the presentation gets, the deeper its actual function can be in our world because we can match up the specifics and particularities of our world, which are also equally rich, to the particularities and specifics of what we're seeing. And uh, Wittgenstein has this very interesting claim where he says, nothing is more important for understanding the concepts that we have than for con- than constructing fictitious ones. And I think the, the same is true here. So in a way, the more specific, the more... Um, so the more different what we're seeing is from what is around us, then the more that we have this potential for reflection. Uh, so that's all a sort of preamble of, of, of how to situate the storytelling motifs. And then I think the wire, as you sort of note, has emerged as allegedly one of, one of the, the chief accomplishments of, of something like new television. And so uh, I wanted to understand that. I wanted to see, um, you know, is this is this just by accident that critics have sort of latched onto this, or or is there something significant there, and and what is it sort of? Um, and so I I don't want to keep talking because maybe I'll get bored for viewers. So I don't know if you want to follow up with any questions there, or if not, then I can go into my. Uh... No, I mean that was great. I seen it. it. It did make me think. Um, I mean, there's a little thing in the book where you talk about you know. Maybe I should do a book on Benjamin and kind of, you know, the philosophy of film and cinema. And um, But it did make me think about this kind of canonical status that The Wire has. So it wasn't just Obama and, you know, the man or woman on the street. But actually in the UK, there was an explosion of um, sort of social science writers talking about The Wire as sociology. You know, what can The Wire tell us about how the contemporary American city functions, you know, how might we compare that to like, you know, how London functions or, or stuff like that. And it, it, as you say, it had this kind of canonical status as, as this is the one, you know, more so than perhaps the Sopranos, which is 
you know, bounded by family. And, and as we'll come on to, to talk about actually more so than weeds, which again has got, you know, a kind of particular um, sort of focus around around families or, or something like like Breaking Bad as well. So yeah, like what is The Wire? What, you know, what is it about this show that, you know, maybe in terms of kind of form and content that are, that's given it that sense? Yeah, um, right. That's a great point. And I think actually the phenomenon that you're describing about The Wire being seen as a sort of sociology is, is also true here. So we have Harvard sociologists um, making very similar claims and, um, so yeah, I can absolutely say a little more about that. I mean, one thing I also wanted to note very quickly is um, there is already actually a very wonderful book um, on Benjamin and and um, cinema called Cinema and Experience by Miriam Hansen that I would recommend to anyone that's interested. Um, but about the the wire, one thing that I, I haven't mentioned, but that's also very important to the book is um, is situating new television amidst other streams of modernism. And what I mean by that is. Um, I guess we've already hinted this, but I can make it explicit, uh, hinted at this, but, and I'll make it explicit. Um, the, there's a way in which arts enter a modernist phase. There are lots of different ways for understanding this, but the, again, the two figures that are somehow most important to me are, um, Stanley Cavell and, and his friend, the uh, art historian, Michael Fried. And the way they think about modernism is that, um, it's not guaranteed sort of what's going to work as a piece of art in the modernist period. And what we mean by that is um, it's very hard, for example, to write a sonnet now. And I don't mean by that that it's hard to sit down and, and formally write a sonnet, but it's hard to write a sonnet that will be you know, compelling to folks. Um, and that's because the way in which we write poems um, are complex now. They've multiplied. There's so many different ways of writing a poem. And in a way, the way they conceive of modernism is to think of it as something that still has a relationship to the past, so to the forms and the ways that um, various media made sense before, but there's no guarantee that what made sense before will make sense now, and again, aesthetically. And so it may be the case that the best way to write a poem is to you know, write something that has a totally different structure now. That's because the present moment demands something different. And the reason I mention all of this is I think there's an interesting story that one can tell about the relationship between, first of all, film and things like photography and painting. And if that's true about film, then I think it's also true about new television. And so the story that Michael Fried and Stanley Cavell tell is something like the following, which is that we tend to think that photography and painting were somehow in competition. And so that um, painting switches to this very abstract phase because it, it couldn't do what photographs do, right? No, no painting can get as sort of specific and detailed as a photograph can get allegedly. And so painting in order to survive, in order to continue making sense has to become abstract in a way. And what I think Fried does that's very fascinating is he shows that that story is completely wrong. So it is not that painting switched to this more abstract phase because it was somehow competing with photography. Actually, painting got there because of internal problems. So because the way in which paintings made sense stopped making sense, and internally it was forced into this more abstract phase. And so Fried, um, who's an art historian, has a sequence of really, really fascinating art histories um, where he traces this, and the key figure for him is, is a painter named Manet, 
who he claims becomes intimately fascinated with um, what is it that a painting does. And fundamentally, Monet realizes, as most painters do, I think, that a painting is meant to be beheld. But Manet theorizes that and realizes it and, in a way, makes it part of what painting is. So he ends up painting these very fascinating paintings that somehow acknowledge that there's someone standing um, in front of the painting. So he'll paint uh, a figure standing uh, in front of you as you're looking at the painting, and behind her is a mirror. And where you are standing, there appears to be someone else reflected in the mirror. And so somebody standing in front of this is going to say, oh, that's weird. Wait a second. I should be appearing in that mirror. And so Manet, in a way, is getting the beholder to think about the fact that he's beholding or she is beholding a painting. And uh, that, Freed thinks, is the sort of trajectory of painting so that on its own, it begins to think about its conditions of possibility. And that moves it to thinking about these sort of very abstract things. And then photography emerges at a separate period and its trajectory is somehow um, eventually towards moving images. And according to Cavell, who takes up this freed uh, story in a way, film also enters a modernist phase when the ways in which film made sense stop making sense. So that um, Cavell talks about types. And for him, types are not stereotypes, but they're just ways in which film is able to tell its stories in a way. So there are types um, that individuals are actualized through these sort of types. So a type like he talks about, um, one can think of the sort of uh, strong um, strong type of man that's presented in early cinema, or one can now think about the way in which romance comedies operate or, or whatever else. There's lots of different types and ways of making sense, but those types become less believable over time. And so then what will make sense on screen also in a way enters this phase of modernism and stops making sense. And I think new television tells its stories in very similar ways. So it takes up types and it takes up procedurals and it takes up motifs from television. Um, but there's no guarantee that they'll make sense anymore. So think about the type of, uh, uh, not the type, but the, the possibility of a sitcom. Uh, a sitcom has a certain phase, but there's a way in which you can't just do a sitcom after Curb Your Enthusiasm or now after Transparent. The sitcom has become something new and there's no guarantee that what made sense before will make sense again. So maybe it will not be possible to have a laugh track ever again after certain types of shows and so forth and so forth. Now, the reason I mention all of this as a lead up to The Wire is I actually think The Wire is also intimately involved in thinking about what it means to have a viewer. And what I mean by that is the following. A lot of scholars are convinced that uh, The Wire is a sort of tragedy, and that is the central way to, um, to understand things here. And there's a lot of ink that's been spilt about what sort of tragedy it is and how do we understand tragedy in it. And I think in a way, um, that's not the central point because first, it doesn't immediately seem obvious how tragedy operates in The Wire. So um, it doesn't, in any immediate sense, uh, con conform to any of our modern conceptions of tragedy. So there's a conception of tragedy, for example, in, in certain readings of Hegel, where it's allegedly a collision between two forces. Um, but that doesn't seem 
to be what we get in the wire necessarily. Um, rather, I think the way that the wire operates is that it screens something like the tragic for us. In other words, essential to the wire's success is screening the suffering that's engendered in Baltimore. So in a way, the main character is the city. And, um, and the suffering is shown across all of the different facets of the city. So um, you get the police and the criminals, but you also get the ports and the unions, and then you get the educational system, and then you get the legal and business realms. And so in a way, what it wants to do is to screen the suffering of the entire city of Baltimore, but really it's also thereby, I think, a stand-in for any modern American city. That is already, I think, an extremely ambitious and interesting project, but The Wire is also, I think, sophisticated enough to even ask about the possibility of this project. So you get this remarkable fifth season that is generally maligned by critics, but that I think is actually uh, an incredibly rich and incredibly suggestive and incredibly powerful season um, because The Wire is actually, with its own focus on storytelling, a screening tragedy and the tragic, is trying actually to comment on the very idea of producing a work of art like that. So um, it actually specifically introduces certain motifs of theatricality and absorption, which are in a way Michael Fried's shorthands for this problem of a beholder, of what it means to view these sort of artworks. And so The Wire wants us to question our role as spectators of such suffering, both on the screen and then off. And so the fifth season, which focuses on how narratives are constructed, how stories are told, um, explicitly, I think at certain moments that I try to show in the book, um, and now we'd have to talk, it's very difficult, I think, to do in a in an oral medium, we'd have to talk about particular screenshots, but I think it's obvious that the way certain things are shot, they very much force the viewer to reflect on the fact of, of viewership. Um, and that is happening exactly to get the wire in a way to get us, uh, sorry, I should start over. That is happening in a way to get us to think about how the wire is constructing its stories and then to think about how we construct stories in response to such works of art, in other words, in response to presentations of suffering. So that's a really long, uh, long answer to your question, but but I hope it it puts everything in the right context. Yeah, I, I, and I have a really short follow up question, which is: so how is that different to weeds? Because <laughs> um, you know you've kind of painted, I guess, the wire at scale. If that makes sense, you know, a, a city that could be any American city, which in turn could be, you know, maybe any any global city. But obviously, Weeds is, is much smaller. You know, it's it's a much kind of, um, I guess, smaller canvas, and yet it has a similar, you know, breadth of kind of um, engagement with these questions about mater- modernity, markets, you know, this kind of stuff. So yeah, like how is Weeds? Uh, I guess you know another good example of new television, despite being quite different. Yeah. Um, so there's actually, there's two things that I think I would stress in response. I mean, first, there's also something else that we ought to mention about The Wire that I haven't mentioned yet, which is I do actually think that it falls into this genre of new television, meaning that it shows a sort of complete loss of normative authority. I mean, The Wire, one thing that people often say about it is that it's, quote, a depressing show, right? It's somehow 
depressing and, and there don't seem to be any sort of sparks of hope. And I think part of that is, is, is why it's so successful is it's honest about Baltimore and about the American city. But nonetheless, I think that's actually too quick. So there are a few interesting moments of hope in it, and they all actually center around the family. So Naaman Bryce, who's this kid that is adopted by a family, is one of the few success stories in The Wire. And then there's also this interesting discussion between McNulty and Beattie in the fifth season after McNulty has invented this serial killer and you've had this, you know, he's in a way threatened the existence of his whole family, which he's just sort of restarted with this woman. And she says, look, McNulty, life is pretty miserable. The only thing that you get is the little bits of happiness that you get with your family. And so in a way that I take this scene is very important because it makes explicit the assumptions of the wire, which is, again, family is the only site where things make sense in a way. It's the only bit of hope. And I think what's what's sort of fascinating about The Wire is I think that undermines actually its status as a work of art, as a, as a complete work of art, because it doesn't think through this idea of family in any sort of way. It's, it's regressive in a certain way. I mean, its notion of family is, is somewhat primitive and unreflective. Weeds, on the other hand, I think is much more sophisticated when it comes to the family and really actually thinks about, well, what does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to think that the family is the last remaining site of authority? What does that come down to? What are the political stakes of that? And I think the way it does that is by showing you the various experimentations that this Botwin family undertakes. And so that's the first point. The second point is that I agree that at first glance, weed seems like it's far narrower. Um, but really, the only difference initially is that it takes place in the suburbs. So where The Wire is about a city, Weeds is about the suburbs, which, again, is an important American phenomenon. But what's striking about Weeds is then it becomes global in scope. So um, after a few seasons, they, they go on the run and they very famously then end up in Connecticut at some point, but they spend time also in Europe. And so the show becomes much more global in scope, but its focus becomes very much the family and this experimentation of what it might mean to be a family amidst these sort of conditions. Um, and so this trope of suburban fiction, I think, serves as an entry point um, to the loss of normative authority. Um, but eventually the show kicks it away and, and becomes something more sophisticated. And in many regards for me, I think, um, in the story that I'm trying to tell, um, Weeds is a sort of hero. And what I mean by that is, is Weeds is one of the few shows that actually is quite reflective about this genre of new television, meaning that it thinks both about the loss of normative authority and the conditions that engender it. So the sort of things that you talked about, modernity, in the case of Weeds, there's also, I spend a lot of time talking about um, boredom, um, which is a version of this. It's also a loss of a sort of normative authority in the world as such, right? Nothing is captivating for one anymore. Um, but it is equally reflective about the status of the family, which most of these shows are, are not. They're, they're only reflective about the loss of normative authority and then just invoke the family as, as some sort of solution potentially to this. Um, but Weeds, I think, is very sophisticated because it does both in a way. And I think um, in that regard, it's, it's in a way, like I said, the hero of the book. I quite like the idea that the book's got a, got a hero. Um, you mentioned this regressive problem. And I mean, the, the way I was going to kind of end the interview was 
was posing provocatively this question about, you know, actually, have you told a story of effectively, you know, three key kind of um, new television programs that are actually not just kind of bleak, but actually present, you know, quite narrow and and almost sort of, I don't know, traditional versions of, you know, stick with your family, you know, close off your family unit, uh, and that will get you through the kind of, you know, catastrophic failures of institutions or normative authority. And and I wonder actually, because in, in the conclusion of the book, right at the very end, you kind of say justified, which I must admit I haven't seen. So, you know, I don't have the same kind of feeling for the show as I do for the other two, but, you know, justified is, is again, one of those ones that, that maybe is not just a kind of bleak and narrow story and, and, you know, might be regressive, but actually might offer us something a bit more kind of, you know, um, social justice orientated. So I wonder, yeah, could you, could you kind of t- tell me some good news, um, from, from justified? Well, I think, um, the reason I wanted to mention justified is, um, I think you're right that what I wanted to do in the book in a way is to use, um, three shows that I think actually are in a way, um, exemplars or, or might stand in for a wide array of other shows. Um, so I could have, I think, picked other shows and made similar points about the genre of new television. And what I mean by that is, is this genre of, um, so this way of making sense by presenting loss of normative authority in the world and then some sort of recourse to the family. And in the book, I end up saying, well, genre is actually not the best word. The best word would be something like a mode. And what I mean by that is um, we talk about, for example, the mode of gothic. We don't say gothic is a genre anymore because we have gothic humor and we have gothic horror and we have gothic drama. And there, there's lots of ways in which um, the mode of the Gothic is presented. And I think new television is also similar because it's a mode that can be presented in different genres. So you have comedies and you have dramas and you have sci-fi and you have fantasy and whatever else. Um, the reason I mention all of that is I think it also is significant that um, something like this televisual form or mode um, originates in the USA. I think a lot of its early examples are reflecting on the aesthetic and political conditions and history of the United States. And I think Justified is a really great show for, for making that explicit because um, it does something very interesting. It combines the gangster film, which is central to American sort of conceptions of the USA, and the Western, which is equally central. So it combines these two genres into a television show that takes place um, – you know, in the contemporary world. And that also takes place in, in what my friend Travis Abels has called um, red states, uh, meaning that it's a red state show. So it shows a locale, um, Kentucky, that uh, oftentimes isn't portrayed on American television. So there's something significant about its aspirations. And I think it also, again, falls into this motif of or mode of, of new television, um, where it has a particular structure. Um but it pursues themes about normative authority and about the family specifically in the context of the idea of the USA. And this is something that I think um, I thought was important to, to bring out. And so that's why I, I mentioned it. But as far as the general um, 
the general construction of the mode of new television, I wouldn't say that it does anything different or new um, that other shows don't do. I think what it does is it sort of allows you to think about the concept of the USA as such, which I just think philosophically is very interesting because um, very few very few philosophers are doing it. We have lots of conceptions of Europe in the philosophical canon, but apart from folks like Stanley Cavell and then earlier Thoreau and Emerson, it's very rare for um, folks to reflect on the idea of America in any sort of deep sense. Obviously, unfortunately, we also now have you know a president that is allegedly reflecting on, on some idea of America, but it's, it's mostly nonsense. Um, but I think... Uh, Justified does that. And then as far as the the political question of, of whether new television is regressive, I think it's the question that I ask myself at the end. And um, I think the first answer that I would give is, is, well, no, it's not. Because you can take a show like Weeds that really thinks about what this recourse to the family might amount to. And I think the answer that Weeds gives, or at least I argue this is the answer that it gives in, in the book through some detailed readings, is that what the recourse to the family amounts to is just this idea of possibility, meaning that um, the family has no fixed structure, um, but it does allegedly uh, produce something that's completely novel into the world. And here again, Hannah Arendt is um, extremely sort of relevant and useful. So she has spends a lot of time thinking about this notion of natality, just the idea that what's important um, to politics is that it can produce something completely new, much in the same way that, you know, every baby that's born is entirely unique and new. And I think weeds comes to very similar conclusions about the possibilities of the family. So that could be a first pass answer to saying, well, yes, a lot of new television is regressive because it doesn't conceive a family in that way. So I think shows like Breaking Bad, shows like 24, and I think even a show like The Wire are in this way regressive because they think about family unreflectively. But I think there are other shows like Weeds, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like Justified also that think about it. In, in more sophisticated ways. But what sort of uh, fascinates me in the conclusion is, um, is this book by a guy named Lee Edelman that's called No Future. And uh, he's a very interesting queer theorist. And he basically says, look, um, isn't it true that actually any recourse to futurity and to figures of the child is actually also already regressive? Um, meaning that it attempts somehow to do politics in a way that doesn't do politics, right? It, it's some sort of guarantee. And I think it's an interesting question, um, but I think um, one doesn't need necessarily to follow um, Edelman on this point. And that's, that's sort of what I try to sketch in the conclusion is maybe there's just another way of thinking about futurity that's not regressive in the way that he suggests. Um, so ultimately, I guess the answer to, to whether new television is, is regressive or not is, um, is I think, um, oftentimes, yes. But there are, I think, some great works of art that are not regressive that are um, – very interesting in these sort of ways and present politics as, as something that has a focus on novelty. And that, again, I think, if anything, actually, in a way, our present moment uh, needs more of. I mean, we need, we need ways to think about possibilities um, that we may ne necessarily not even know about yet. So we need ways to spark our imaginative capacities and to um, 
to envision ourselves as the sorts of people that could potentially create something new. And I think the best sort of uh, examples of new television do that. that. That's a really wonderful place um, to end, actually. But, but just, just very briefly, um, are you going to be working on that question then? Or is it time to do, I don't know, you know, a, a kind of completely different uh, philosophical project? Um, yeah, in a way, I actually... Um, I'm working on this question, I think, from from two points. So um, as you know, but as as people listening may or may not know, my other sort of strand of research is actually on um, Adorno and and the Frankfurt School and actually in particular um, genocide and so political philosophy and things of that sort. And um, so that's something that I'm returning to now. That was the topic of my first book. And now I'm working on something about uh, the nation state structure. So the very fact that we've organized ourselves into nation states, which again, a recourse to the family is very much, I think, responding to, um, to this phenomenon. So I'm working on that just as an analytical problem of, of basically taking this organization into nation states and, um, and arguing that that fact, the fact that we have organized ourselves into nation states, as opposed to any particular type of state, is what uh, produces genocide. So that's a very eagle's eye view answer um, of, of how this question, I think, of normative authority and of novelty, because there's a deep way in which genocide, I think, is actually fundamentally about um, something like birth, meaning that it tries to undermine the capability of an entire people for something like this sort of natality. Um, that's a way in which I think you can see this trajectory connecting to contemporary political concerns. But more specifically within um, you know, the realm of sort of aesthetics, I think what's happened in television that I found very interesting is that there have been a few shows that I think are very cognizant of this new television mode or genre and that explicitly attempt to do something um, that doesn't fall into this genre in any particular way. And so far, I've been calling these shows um, sort of apocalyptic shows. And what I mean by that is um, I think of the Amazon show Transparent. I think of the FX show Fargo. And um, most explicitly, um, I think of the HBO show The Leftovers. And so they all present this really interesting moment where um, there's also a loss of normative authority, but there is no recourse to the family. Um, rather, there's a recourse to something completely different. And um, I don't have a good sense of exactly what's going on there, but I am somehow convinced that this is some sort of new mode or new genre or new way in which um, new television tries to to make sense to folks, to to operate. And so that's that's the next project in this realm is to actually sit down with these shows and and really figure out what's going there, going on there, because I think it's something that's a little bit different from uh, what's going on in the typology that I've, I've sketched in this book. Lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.